0: All right. again, it's good to see all of you here this morning. Let us turn then in God's word to Genesis chapter 20 as we are continuing this series through the life of Abraham. And as you're turning there, I want you to reflect for just a moment on when was the last time that someone had let you down? How did you feel as you'd been let down? No one likes to be let down, whether it's a family member, whether it's a friend, whether it's a neighbor, whether it's a coworker. But what happens when we're let down over and over again? Will we quickly stop trusting them? We no longer depend on them. Often the relationship we have itself slowly changes as we move away from them because we cannot find them reliable. We no longer want to depend on them or look to them for help. It's why we have a common quote that many of you have likely heard Fool me once shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. That we learn to not trust in people when they disappoint us and when they let us down. But this morning, we come to see a repeated failure in the life of our father in the faith, Abraham himself. Is this the way, then, we should be thinking as God's people of those who let us down and fail us this morning? Let us hear, then, of this failure in Abraham's life through Genesis chapter 20. So Genesis 20, we'll read the chapter here, verses 1 to 18 this morning. And Abraham journeyed from there to the south and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur, and stayed in Gerar. Now Abraham said of Sarah his wife, "'She is my sister.' And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, "'Indeed, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife.' But Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, "'Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also?' Did he not say to me, she is my sister and she even she herself said he is my brother in the integrity of my heart and innocence of my hands. I have done this. And God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart, for I also withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet and he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning, called all his servants and told all these things in their hearing. And the men were very much afraid. And Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? How have I offended you that you have brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? You have done deeds to me that ought not to be done. Then Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you have in view that you have done this thing? And Abraham said, Because I thought, surely the fear of God is not in this place, and they will kill me on account of my wife. But indeed, she is truly my sister. She is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And it came to pass when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, this is your kindness that you should do for me in every place, wherever we go, say of me, he is my brother. And Abimelech took sheep, oxen, male and female servants and gave them to Abraham. And he restored Sarah, his wife to him. And Abimelech said, see, my land is before you dwell where it pleases you. Then to Sarah, he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Indeed, this vindicates you before all who are with you and before everybody. Thus she was rebuked. So Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech, his wife and his female servants. Then they bore children for the Lord had closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Brothers and sisters, let us again go before our God, in prayer. Father, Father, what a joy it is for us to gather together in Your presence and worship You, to sing Your praises, to know that You hear us as we pray, and now to hear from You as your word is preached. Lord, may this not be a weekly repetition we go through. But may we recognize this as a divine opportunity to hear afresh from you through the power of your Holy Spirit. And that in doing so, That you will faithfully, Father, feed our very souls with the truths of your word. So may you be working through your word as preached this morning. And Father, may I as your preacher be the one to bring these truths and nothing but these truths before your people. So that those among us who do not know Christ will recognize their need of Christ and rejoice in the salvation he offers us. Father, for those of us who do know Christ, may we be encouraged through our Father, of the faith Abraham, because it's in him, Lord, we see the greatness of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so we ask that you be with us during this time, Lord. We pray all these things in the name of our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, what do we learn here from Abraham's repeated compromise of his faith in God? That God's salvation is dependent on His grace, not on our faithfulness. Isn't that wonderful? God's salvation is dependent on his grace, not on our faithfulness. And we see this truth in this passage through three stages of development. The first stage we see in the first two verses where God's promise is threatened. God's promise is threatened. But then secondly, we move on in verses 3 to 13 with the second stage where God's protection is is extended, God's protection extended. And then third, we finally come to the third stage in verses 14 to 18, where we see God's provision received. God's provision received. So God's promise threatened, God's protection extended, and God's provision received. Let us begin then in this first stage by seeing how God's promise was threatened. Now, remember, we have this spread of sin continuing through humanity as all of mankind lives in rebellion against God. And yet God chooses this man, Abraham, through whom salvation from the wrath of God we all deserve will come which is why God enters into a covenant with Abraham. He guarantees Abraham descendants who will live in a promised land through whom the nations of the world will be blessed. And in response to God, Abraham is obligated to receive the covenant sign of circumcision and to obey God and follow his commands. This is why God then appears before Abraham as a man and enjoys a covenant meal with Abraham and fellowship with him. And then he warns of his judgment to come against the wicked who were living around him in the Jordan Valley. And it's here in the Jordan Valley that Abraham's nephew Lot had separated from him to live and enjoy the things of the world as he moves to dwell in the city of Sodom. Which is where, of course, God judges the sinfulness of those living there. So after this tragic failure of Lot's life, who lives by sight rather than through faith in God and his promises, we read of the tragic destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah as fire and brimstone rain down and destroy all living things there. it's after this that we come back to Abraham. What do we see then here of Abraham? As this chapter begins, he continues dwelling as a pilgrim without a home. He had been living in a tent, by the terebinth trees there in Mamre, by Hebron. And it's here that God had eaten with him, and it is here that Abraham had seen the Jordan Valley go up in smoke. And it's after these things take place that Abraham begins moving again and journeys back south to pitch his tent in the city of Gerar as he is a stranger In this new location. And what do we read next? Again in verse 2, Abraham said of Sarah his wife, She is my sister. Now at this point, you should be experiencing some deja vu. At least if you've been following us through this series. And that's because This has happened before, back in chapter 12. So if you want to turn back there for just a moment, we we won't read uh, the entire story of what happens. But in Genesis 12, after Abraham originally came into the promised land of Canaan, there was a famine that had caused him and his wife to go down into the land of Egypt. And this is what we read there in Genesis 12, uh, verses 11 to 13. And it came to pass when he was close to entering Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, Indeed, I know that you are a woman of beautiful countenance. Therefore, it will happen when the Egyptians see you that they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say you are my sister, that it may be well with me for your sake, and that I may live because of you. You see, because of Sarah's beauty, Abraham feared they would kill him so that she could then become a wife of one of the Egyptians. The solution then he came up with was for Sarah to say that she was his sister rather than his wife. Sure enough, she caught the eye of Pharaoh there in Egypt and he brought her into his home. But thankfully, God prevented anything from happening there and he He sends plagues to Pharaoh in his house, through which Pharaoh recognizes that Sarah is indeed Abraham's wife, which is why he then sends them away back into the land of Canaan that God had promised them. But when we come to chapter 20, what do we see? Here we go again. The same problem reappears after all that has happened in Abraham's life since chapter 12. Abraham still gives in to his lying ways when he fears what will happen to him in his life. So we've seen how Abraham's faith in God has been strengthened over the years and as Abraham has matured through all has experienced in the land, but even after everything that has happened, here he reverts back to his previous sin. He has eaten in fellowship with God himself. And he has watched as God's judgment rained down in fire in sin. And yet here, his faith fails again. And Coming on after chapter 19, we see he's really not that much different than Lot at all. So, through Abraham's failure and his compromise of his faith, we find God's promise of salvation here once again at risk. See, if Satan, sorry, not of Satan, if Sarah is taken away from Abraham here in the city of Gerar, that she cannot be the promised mother of the seed through whom the nations of the world will be blessed. So even we find here then how even our heroes, even our heroes are sinners who fail. Now, I don't want to get too controversial here this morning. We can have a debate over what kinds of statues should be memorialized, the history of various people in our nation. But there is a very real challenge going on today of what many call cancel culture. That we must cancel and withdraw any support from those who have failed us and lived in great sin in history. So we can't support or look to a man like George Whitfield because he promoted the evil and wicked practice of slavery in our nation. We can't look to or appreciate and support Martin Luther because of his great hatred against the Jewish people. But brothers and sisters, we must not expect too much from our fellow men. No one is good enough to never fail us. No one, is good enough to be righteous. We are all sinners who fail and often fail in great and spectacularly sinful ways. This doesn't mean. God won't use us. This doesn't mean. God is not at work through us, and we must not think we are somehow better than those who have gone before us. As if we don't need the grace that God so abundantly provides to sinners as we sin and fail against Him. Our hope is not found in ourselves or in our ability to live right. Which is why the politics of the left or the right will not save us. But we are desperate sinners who often fail and depend on God to bring us out of this mess that we find ourselves in through sin. So in this first stage through Abraham's life, we see God's promise threatened. But then in verses 3 to 13, we move on to the second stage where God's protection is extended His protection is extended. Again, Abraham has messed everything up and he has threatened God's promise of a son by compromising his faith here, which is why his only hope is for God himself to reverse the consequences of his sin. Well, this time we see that God comes to the king of Gerar in a dream. Now that Abimelech has taken Sarah to join his harem, God confronts him through a dream. And dreams are often used by God in Scripture as a way for those who have no relationship with God to be able to receive revelation from God. We see this later in the book of Genesis, for example, when God reveals himself to Pharaoh in Egypt, which is why Pharaoh needs Joseph to interpret his dreams, Or why later in the Old Testament, we see in the book of Daniel how King Nebuchadnezzar has dreams. And Daniel needs to interpret these dreams for him. Now here, Abimelech doesn't need an interpreter. God's words are clear enough. But what does Abimelech hear from God in this dream? God says to him, you are a dead man. Now that's a way to get your attention. You are a dead man. The surely wakes him up. Abimelech here will be punished through death without an heir because he has taken Abraham's wife to be his own. But notice here even that a pagan unbeliever like Abimelech knew taking another man's wife was wrong. Because God's law is written on all of our hearts and our conscience knows what is right and wrong. Creation itself has revealed God to us and what God expects of us, which is why the light of nature shines here in the life of Abimelech. And he knew that taking Sarah was a sinful act when he discovered she was married. Which means that even before the Ten Commandments were ever given to God's people Israel on Mount Sinai, here this pagan king, Abimelech, knew the Seventh Commandment. That adultery is sin. And God's moral law is universally known by all of humanity through his general revelation, which leads to conviction of sin. Now, thankfully, we see that Abimelech has not yet done anything with Sarah. He has brought her into his home, into his harem, and yet he has not yet touched her or violated her. And so he protests his death sentence here by pleading his ignorance. God, I didn't know she was married. He here recognizes God's authority then over him and pleads with God, knowing that this judgment that God has condemned him to will come not only upon him, but on the entire city nation that he rules over. He has been fooled. He says, because both Abraham and Sarah said to him that she was his sister and they never said anything about her being his wife. And so he maintains his integrity and his innocence in what has happened. Now, of course, God has already known what has taken place. But here we see how his sovereign hand has been at work. It wasn't just by accident Abimelech had not touched Sarah, but God did not let Abimelech sin by touching Sarah. We see then his sovereign mercy here as he restrains Abimelech from continuing in sin. Isn't it interesting then how the providence of God works through history? How God restrains sin, even among unbelievers, out of love for humanity who is created in his image. And because of his greater purposes and plans for, salvation of, for the salvation of his people. So God here tells Abimelech to give Sarah back to Abraham so that he will no longer continue to pursue this sin. But notice that Abimelech's ignorance did not keep him from God's judgment. Because we sin against God whenever we disobey God, whether we know it or not. There are sins of ignorance that we commit. It's the transgression of God's law, the violation of God's law that brings sin, not our knowledge Of these things. So Abimelech is guilty, which is why God reveals his guilt to him. And so he says, You must return, Sarah, to Abraham. And the reason he gives is because Abraham serves God as a prophet. Now, this is the first time the word prophet is used in Scripture. Here then we find Abraham is the one whom God has chosen to announce God's word to his people and to the nations. Now before this time, God had worked directly with people, but now we see God beginning to work through a man whom he has called to bring his word to others through this office. And it's also then through Abraham and his prophetic office that he can then mediate God's forgiveness. Which is why if Abraham prayed for Abimelech here, then he would not be punished with death but live. But if he kept Sarah for himself, then we find Abimelech and his household will die under God's judgment. You see, since God has chosen his blessings to the nations to come through Abraham, here Abimelech's hope of deliverance from judgment is found through the ministry of God's chosen mediator. So what do you think happens after Abimelech has this dream? Well, He wakes up and first thing in the morning, crack it on, he tells his servants what God has said. And they are all filled with fear. Even unbelieving pagans can fear God's judgment against them. Because we all know how God is real and that we all deserve His condemnation for our sin even when we suppress this truth in our sin. And here we have these pagans living in this city under the fear of God and conviction of their sin, how Abraham then has misjudged this situation. He worried they would not fear God, right? That's what we see in verse 11. But when they're told of God's judgment, they're very much afraid, as we see in verse 8. How easily then we can misjudge how people respond to the truth of God's word. We are willing to give up far too easily or dismiss the needs of people to hear the gospel and the word of God in compromise rather than trusting in God to work through his word. Again, that's what happens here through Abraham. And that's why then next we see Abimelech confronting Abraham for his deceit. Ironically, Abimelech serves as a kind of prophet to Abraham. Exposing his sin against God. So he interrogates Abraham with questions. And the first question is the same question Pharaoh had asked Abraham back in chapter 12. What have you done to us? And he continues asking these questions. And what is Abraham's response? He admits what he has done, and gives reasons for them, really excuses for what he does. And to be honest, as I read his argument, as I read his justification, to be honest, I could see the same arguments going through my head. This rationalization of sin has a kind of logic to it. And yet, this shows how much I am like Abraham and how quickly I am to try and excuse my sin as well. Which is why after Abimelech asks these three questions of Abraham, now Abraham responds with three excuses. Look at how Abraham compromised first. He was afraid of those who have no fear of God, which is why his solution then was to ignore God. And to rely on a half-truth to prevent him from getting harmed. And if you listen carefully to his excuse, you see how Abraham cares here more about his own life than about his wife's. It's why he allows her to be added to the king's harem rather than relying on God and trusting in God to carry out his promises This is like Adam's sin played over again. Adam, too, allowed his wife Eve to eat the forbidden fruit and failed to lead her in faithfulness to God, which plunged all of humanity in sinful rebellion against God. Abraham here, then, is still reflecting the first Adam, which is why he, too, compromises his marriage in sin. then the second excuse he gives is that technically he did tell the truth because she is his sister on their father's side. You see, we not only lie when we tell something that isn't true as true as we try to pass something that's false as true, but we also lie when we deceive others through the truth as we seek to distract or distort the truth, give a mistaken impression through the truth. It is still a lie because of our seeking to deceive others. And so we come to the third excuse where he explained this agreement that they had made together, Abraham and Sarah had made. Abraham had said that wherever we go, the people would know that Sarah is his sister rather than his wife. So do you see these three excuses? First, that the people would not fear God. Second, that they uh, did speak the truth. And third, that their wandering lives would present them with many dangers through the years. But the truth is none of these really hold up. None of these excuses hold up before God. You see, Abraham had heard from God and trusted in God's promise through faith. But still, when times got tough, he began to depend on himself and on what he could do to gather the mess he was in rather than looking to God and continuing to trust in him by faith. And what's amazing is through this all, through this all, after God's plan of salvation is threatened over and over again, God will not let it fail. But God protects Abraham and Sarah from the consequences of their sin so that he can carry out his plan of salvation through them. You see, Abraham may have threatened God's promise But God protected his chosen man and his wife to bring salvation from God's judgment into this world. Which is why we read him here sovereignly working to counter Abraham's compromise. So that his plan of blessing will continue to come through Abraham. While Abraham was faithless, God remained faithful. So we see God's protection extended to Abraham and Sarah. Well, this brings us then to the third stage here that's set up in this chapter. The third development. God's promise is threatened. God's protection is then extended. And finally, God's provision is received. Verses 14 to 18. Abimelech has been confronted By this sin of ignorance, then Abimelech confronts Abraham over Abraham's lie or his half truth. And how does Abimelech finally respond to this? By listening to God and by compensating Abraham for his sin of ignorance against him and his wife. He gives him then great gifts and blessings. Really, what he, he gives here is reparation for the injustice that he has committed against Abraham and his wife, even though he wronged them without knowing it. What's fascinating here is how rich Abraham already was. And yet here he is given even more. What abundance then he has received from God, even though he fails by God's grace. Abraham is enriched by God despite his sin. So Abimelech does give Sarah back to Abraham and offers him whatever land he'd like to dwell in there in the city. And then Abimelech turns and speaks to Sarah and gives her, through her husband, a thousand pieces of silver which is a huge sum of money. One estimate says that this would be like a local laborer there having to work 167 years to earn this amount of money. And it's given to Sarah to restore her honor, which he has violated. Now, uh, admittedly, Verse 16 proves hard to interpret. Some see this as more of a rebuke of Abimelech to Sarah rather than a restoration of Sarah by Abimelech. But it does seem to me more likely that this is a restoration that Abimelech carries out after the wrong he has committed against her. Assuming this is correct, then, this is a public vindication that Abimelech is seeking to make restitution for what he has done wrong when he took Sarah for himself. So how, do these, how does this chapter come to an end? With Abraham indeed serving as a prophet and again interceding for God's mercy as he prays to God for Abimelech and his household. And that's why we see then Abimelech and those in his home Able once again to have children. You see how God simply would not allow Abimelech to carry out his sin and keep this promise of salvation from coming, which is why he closed the wombs of the women. God had kept all of these women from becoming pregnant when Abimelech had taken Sarah. But here through Abraham's intercession, we see Abraham restoring or being restored by God and remaining in covenant with God as God's mediator through whom God will bless the nations with life rather than death. How gracious God is rather than giving up on Abraham through his his repeated failures. Restoring Abraham to continue using him even as a sinner who so often fails. And as this chapter draws to a close, we see how God is sovereign over the opening and closing of the womb. And as he closes and opens the wombs of the house of Abimelech, so he has closed and will open the womb of Sarah, who has remained barren for all these years. Which is what we see then going into chapter 21. But I want us to notice one last thing about Abraham. Notice how Abraham's heart grows through God's grace in this chapter. At the beginning of the chapter, he fears those who live in the city of Gerar, he feels what will happen to them there. But as the chapter comes to an end, he pleads for God's mercy for Abimelech and his home. Abraham doesn't despise them as godless pagans, but he works for their good, and he works for the good of their city. He is willing to bless them as a prophet who intercedes for them, even as they remain outside of God's people in sin. How then we need to be reminded of this truth today. That while Genesis does reveal enmity between believers and unbelievers, we should not hate unbelievers, treat poorly unbelievers, distance ourselves from unbelievers. But we are called as believers in Jesus Christ, as those who are trusting in God and his promise of salvation, to love unbelievers. To love sinners, to work for their good. Because look, God loves all of us as his image bears. And it is through our love of neighbor. It is through our seeking their good. That God may then reveal his love to them through Jesus Christ. So Abraham here has endangered God's promise of salvation by compromising his faith in fear. But this is the good news. God's salvation does not depend on us. It comes in spite of our sins and failures. God's promise of salvation then through this chapter is preserved by the undeserved grace of God. So while Abraham was unfaithful, God was faithful to his covenant promises and he restores Abraham so that his salvation will be accomplished by his grace. Do you see then how God's salvation is dependent on his grace, not on our faithfulness? God's salvation is dependent on his sovereign grace, not on us and our faithfulness. I love how John Calvin summarizes these verses in his commentary. He writes, In this history, the Holy Spirit presents to us a remarkable instance, both of the infirmity of man and of the grace of God. So this repeated compromise of Abraham, we find, comes right after Lot. And the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and right before God will come and visit Sarah and give them a child, which is no accident. God here is revealing that it is not through Abraham and his faithfulness that God's salvation comes. Abraham is not responsible for God's covenant promises being fulfilled, but God alone is. It will only be God who can carry out and complete the promises he has made to Abraham. It is then because of God's faithfulness that he sends his son as a descendant of Abraham to accomplish our salvation. And this is where we find our hope. Because God himself becomes a descendant of Abraham by the incarnation, through the incarnation where he becomes a man in the person of Jesus Christ. And he lives the life of righteousness. None of us can live in our sin. We will fail over and over and over and over and over and over again. And yet our salvation and our hope do not depend on us. They depend on God and His grace. Which is why Christ lived righteously in our place. And then took upon Himself the very judgment of God we deserve as God's wrath was poured out on His Son. As He shed His blood and died on the cross for us. So if you are here this morning and you are looking to yourself or to anyone else to make things better for you or for all the wickedness and injustice and evil and oppression in the world, all your hope is in vain. But the good news is there's a far better hope. And that hope does not depend on us. It Depends on God and his grace. Believe in Christ. And the salvation he provides. Because his grace is sufficient. And God will continue to work. Yes, even through. The sinfulness of men. To bring about the restoration of his creation. Look to Christ by turning away from your sins and repentance and turning to Christ by faith. Look to Christ rather than to others who will fail you. Because Christ will not fail. His grace is steadfast and sure. But for those of us who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, as Abraham was. What do we find here? That even as we live like Abraham, who repeatedly compromises our faith in sin. God doesn't give up on us. But he is at work through us to accomplish his purposes in the world. Isn't that great? We may be quick to give up on others when they fail us. But if God worked that way, none of us would be saved. God then does all we can't do so that our hope and our future is certain. And we can have confidence that His grace will continue to be at work among us. See, the truth is we are far greater sinners than we would like to admit. But we have a far greater Savior who saves us by His grace. What comfort then we are given in our salvation. Reminds me of how the Apostle Paul Begins his letter to the Philippians there in Philippians 1. Listen to verses 3 to 6 here. Paul writing, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for all of you with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it. Until the day of Jesus Christ. When we believe in Christ by faith. The gospel will continue working in us. Repenting of our sins. Trusting in Christ. Shedding the sinfulness that remains in us. As we more and more are transformed into the likeness of Christ. And this is how God will restore all that has been corrupted in this age. May we then look to Christ and his salvation. Let us pray. Father, even through the repeated compromises of Abraham, we see the abundant and amazing grace of Christ. May we then receive this grace by faith. May we then rejoice in this grace in our worship. And may we live in in the comfort and the confidence of this grace. So that our sin will be repented of and will be removed from our lives. And we will more and more live godly, good lives of righteousness. Not through our own strength through the strength Christ gives us in the Holy Spirit. So Father, we pray that You'll be with us all. And we ask these things in the name of our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.